Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Double Jeopardy, the Law and Politics podcast with me, Ken McDonald. I'm a barrister at Matrix Chambers and a former director of public prosecutions. And with me, Tim Owen. I'm also a barrister at Matrix Chambers, specialising in crime, public law and human rights law. So Ken and I thought that we would kick off 2023 with a discussion about where we currently are in relation to a number of legal and constitutional issues and to look forward to likely developments in the year ahead. And who better, we thought, to do that with than in fact our first ever guest on Double Jeopardy, Sir Jonathan Jones, KC. Jonathan was, as I suspect most listeners Uh, No, he was the Treasury Solicitor from March 2014 until September 2020. As TSOL, or Treasury Solicitor, he was the head of the Government Legal Service, and so the Permanent Secretary of the Government Legal Department. In 2020, Jonathan did that very rare thing in public life. He resigned his position on a matter of principle. That principle was his unwillingness to serve in a government which was intending to proceed in contravention of international law in the form of the UK Internal Market Bill. Having resigned, Jonathan became a senior consultant in public and constitutional law at Linklaters. He's also an honorary professor at the Durham Law School. Jonathan, welcome back to Double Jeopardy. Thank you. Very nice to be back. Good to see you, Jonathan, and thanks very much for coming back. Jonathan, you gave a lecture, the Middle Temple Treasurer's Lecture, last November, and uh, the title of it was originally Public Law and the Constitution under a Trust Government, and then in the headline at the top, you've crossed out Trust, and it says under a Sunak Government, because a third Prime Minister within a year was appointed just before you gave the lecture. And in that lecture, you explain, it's called Public Law and the Constitution uh, under a Sunak Government, and and you wanted to look back and put recent events into some kind of constitutional context and then try and look forward and identify some themes which would be relevant to the government's approach to constitutional public law under a Sunak government. And, and that lecture, I think, is a brilliant basis for our discussion today. If I begin by the, by the end with your conclusions, and then we'll go through the points that, that you made. You said at the end, having set out your thoughts on current and future developments, the following, you said, this government and its immediate predecessors seem to have an uneasy relationship with the constitutional, institutional and legal framework within which they work. They think the courts have gone too far and should back off from intervening in government decision making. They don't much like the Human Rights Act. They've been prepared to break international law. They've become increasingly addicted to taking wide powers to legislate with minimal parliamentary scrutiny. They've had, at times, a confrontational attitude to the civil service and been suspicious of its advice. The machinery for enforcing ethical standards in government has been severely weakened. And you said, we've seen changes of tone and emphasis from the new Sunak government, but I'm not expecting these issues to go away and you say, watch this space. I I imagine nothing has changed since you gave that lecture to fundamentally alter those conclusions. Well, that's that's true. Not very much has changed. It's not very long ago since I gave the lecture. I suppose a couple of things which have changed is that we've had, I talked about the union and the government's attitude to calls for another Scottish independence referendum. When I gave the lecture, uh, we were awaiting the Supreme Court judgment in in the reference about that, and we've had it, and we know that the Supreme Court has said that the proposed bill for a second referendum would be outside the competence of the Scottish Parliament. So that gives a clear answer to that legal question. It obviously doesn't dispose of the political question, but what it does mean is that so long as this government is not prepared to consent to 
uh, another referendum. There is no legal or constitutional route through that under the current uh, Scotland Act. So there it is. Uh, for better or worse, we have a legal answer to that question. And the other thing that has changed, and we may want to come back to this, is that on the question of standards, the Prime Minister has now appointed a new independent advisor on the ministerial code. It took, it took a while to do that. He took a while even to issue a new ministerial code, actually. But he's done that, and he has appointed a new advisor. But the new advisor has no more powers than the old ones, the ones that resigned. The two previous advisors on the code resigned, Alex Allen and Christopher Geit. Uh, the new advisor has agreed to take up the post on the basis yeah. that he will have no additional powers, and in particular will have no power to initiate his own investigation. So there's a kind of there's a, there's a well, there's been a bit of movement on that, but not as much as some people would like to see. Jonathan, perhaps we can come back to that uh, at the end because I wanted to ask you about the the current inquiry into Dominic Raab, the, the allegations of bullying and so on. So perhaps we can come back to that standards point on Scotland. I don't know what you thought, but it seemed to me the question that was engaged or proposed in the Scottish Independence Referendum Bill, should Scotland be an independent country, that so obviously did relate to a reserved matter in the sense that it, it, it did relate to the union of the kingdoms of Scotland and England and or the UK Parliament. So it, in a sense, I wasn't surprised by the Supreme Court ruling, were you? I wasn't. I mean, it's easy to say in hindsight, but like you, I thought the answer was tolerably clear. Uh, and after all, even the Lord Advocate, Chief Law Officer for the Scottish Government, herself was not prepared to say that it was within competence. So she had her doubts, to put it no higher. The UK government's position was clearly that this bill was outside the competence of the Scottish Parliament, and the Supreme Court has agreed. So like you, I don't find that very surprising, given the nature of the reservation for the Constitution under the Scotland Act. So as I say, that disposes of the legal question for now, and then we'll just have to see if and when there's any kind of movement on the political front, but I'm not expecting any. Actually, I think that the politics of this case are as interesting as the law. I mean, no one can have seriously advised Nicola Sturgeon that she was likely to win this case. I presume she had advice that she had some chance of winning it, although I find even that quite surprising. There's been some speculation about her her motivation and, and, and some suggestion that what she was really interested in here was the optics, that is setting up a situation in which a United Kingdom court would be frustrating, as she sees it, the will of a elected Scottish nationalist government. And it may be part of the a context in which I think she's in quite a difficult position at the moment. There's no great groundswell in Scotland in favour of a second referendum, still less a great groundswell of support for independence. I mean, one thing's sure that if Nicola Sturgeon calls another referendum, she's really got to win it this time round because it's very difficult to see how there could be a third referendum uh, if the SNP have lost twice. So I think she's in a difficult position. And I think this court case may have been a reflection of that. Well, uh, it must be obvious that she uh, was getting advice that, well, she certainly wasn't being told that she was bound to win. So she, even she must have accepted it was quite likely that she was going to lose. I suppose the thought may have been that you had to test it. Um, I mean, this debate has been going on as long as I can remember. And it's got, you know, what were the boundaries of this particular reservation under Scotland Act? And sooner or later, it was going to be tested. And I suppose she thought, well, we have to, we have to take this as far as we can go. And that is the Supreme Court. 
But like you, I don't believe she would have been surprised by the outcome. One consequence of it may be that she is now being told that it would be improper for her to spend Scottish government resources on further planning or preparation for a referendum. I don't know whether that, that, that view is accepted, but I've certainly heard it expressed that given that it is now being told that there is no lawful route to a second referendum, it would be improper or unlawful for the Scottish government to spend money on it. Either the SNP can campaign, but she should not be using official civil service resources and so on. So to that extent, she may also, in a sense, have backed herself into a kind of administrative corner. But so, so and as you say, the politics are not particularly in favour of another referendum at the moment. So maybe this just has to sit in a holding pattern for you know, foreseeable future. So, Jonathan, that, that deals with Scotland and the Union. The next uh, item in your lecture was um, where next after Brexit. And you make clear you were commenting on the legal and constitutional issues rather than the economic issues or, or the merits or otherwise of, of Brexit in itself. Uh, and, and you identified two particular areas of unfinished business. One was the retained EU law revocation and reform bill. And the second was the Northern Ireland protocol. So w w what's how do you see things in, under those two headings? Well, not much has changed on either of those since my lecture, in the sense they do both remain bits of unfinished business and both still highly controversial. So the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill is currently before Parliament and has completed its common stages. It's a highly controversial bill because it would enable the government to override large parts of the protocol unilaterally, thereby, I would say, and others have said, breaking international law, uh, and it also confers very wide powers on the government to do whatever it likes, essentially, as regards the areas covered by the protocol. So this, I think, is a, is a pretty controversial, pretty damaging piece of legislation, and it's very difficult to see how it leads to any resolution of the issues raised by the protocol. Uh, it can only, I think, be seen as a highly provocative and indeed illegal act as far as the EU is concerned. But that legislation is still there, sitting there in Parliament. Uh, you, we've heard some talk of a sort of more emollient approach from the Sunak government to the possibility of negotiating changes to the protocol. Uh, and the EU seem to think that they are up for that. And that, in my view, is the only way you're going to get any kind of meaningful, lasting resolution to the issues of the protocol is by negotiation, not by threatening unilateral legislation. But that remains, as I've said, unfinished business and the legislation is still sitting there. I, I suppose uh, to, to be generous to the government, one might suggest that what they're really doing here is using the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill as a, a threat, a sort of gun in their back pocket that they never actually intend to fire, but are quite happy to brandish uh, from time to time in order to put some pressure on, on the EU. I mean, it's not a very sophisticated way for a government to behave in the 21st century. But, but perhaps if that is their policy, you could argue it's having some effect. The Taoiseach has, over the last few days, been making noises to the effect that there should be some flexibility on the part of the EU. And there are some signs of, I think, of flexibility coming from Brussels. So it, it, it may be that, 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 that they're not doing more at the moment than brandishing this um, as a threat. 
Well, you may be right. I mean, the story may be that the bill is working as a tactic to the extent that it's encouraging people to talk. I would say it's still a pretty damaging tactic to adopt because it ultimately amounts to saying we are prepared in the end to tear up this treaty that we agreed a couple of years ago if we don't get our way. And that doesn't seem like a very grown-up politics, but that may be, as you say, the calculation that the government has made. Yeah. Jonathan, can we, uh, could you just explain a bit of the background to the retained EU law revocation and reform bill? It's a complicated area, and, and in your lecture you very uh, uh, brilliantly summarise it. And then perhaps, Ken, as a, uh, as a distinguished member of the House of Lords, perhaps you can uh, tell us how the House of Lords are going to react uh, when the bill reaches the Lords. Well, well uh, let, me tr- let me try. So this bill deals with the large body of law that we inherited as part of our membership of the EU over, obviously, several decades since 1973, and which had become part of UK domestic law by virtue of our membership. Uh, And this is obviously a very wide range of areas of law covering all aspects of of our membership of the EU. So the environment and employment law and financial services and regulation and consumer safety, all of those things were to a very significant extent covered by EU law. And when we left the EU following the Brexit referendum, Parliament took the decision that we needed to retain that body of law now as part of our domestic law in order to ensure that there was continuity in the law when we left, that we weren't left with great big gaps in the law, because there was plainly no way, there was not time between the referendum and the time when we left, there wasn't time to amend all that law and decide what we wanted to replace it with. So the decision was made when we left that that law would be carried forward as what was called retained EU law, uh, until the government and parliament could decide what they wanted to do about it. So that's how the category of retained EU law was created. And it did, I think, provide tolerable certainty and continuity. People knew what the law was going to be. Essentially, it was carried forward unchanged, subject only to the technical definitional changes that were needed for the law to work once we'd ceased to be a member state. And I think that broadly worked to provide legal continuity and certainty when we left. Uh, Now we've left, obviously the government and parliament can decide to change any of that law, but what the government has done in the retained EU law bill is to set, I would say, an artificial, a very, very short timescale to the end now of this year, to the end of 2023, at which point the bill provides that all of that retained EU law will automatically expire unless the government positively decides to do something with it. So unless the government decides either to bring forward secondary legislation, regulations to keep particular bits of law, or it can decide to change some of that law or to replace it. So again, this is a bill with very wide powers for ministers to decide what they want to do uh, across the whole body of what was previously EU law. But subject to this automatic cutoff point, which is that they decide to do nothing, or if indeed a piece of law is accidentally missed, then it will automatically fall away in now less than a year's time. And the effect of that is that nobody knows what the law will be in 12 months' time in any of these areas, because we simply don't know which of these laws, uh, the tens of thousands of them, uh, the government will either decide to keep 
or to change or to replace, and which will fall away because of this automatic provision. And this uh, is completely contrary to the idea of legal certainty. It makes it really difficult for businesses or ordinary citizens, indeed, to plan their affairs, because nobody knows what the law will be in any of these areas uh, by the end of this year. So that's the scenario that the uh, retained EU law bill sets up. It's been heavily criticised by all sorts of people, including um, members of the House of Lords, and you'll hear what Ken's got to say about <laughs> what he thinks that House will do to the bill. Well, I think this um, legislation is going to face awful problems in, in the House of Lords, and there are two fundamental reasons. It, it, it touches two nerves which the House of Lords is particularly sensitive to. The first is this. The House of Lords is a, is a scrutinising and revising chamber, and it hates legislation whose purpose or desire seems to be to ouster scrutiny uh, in some way, particularly when it's parliamentary scrutiny that's being ousted, because this goes against the whole DNA of the Lords and what it sees as its raison d'etre and its purpose. And there's no doubt at all that this bill uh, involves setting up a scheme which will avoid parliamentary scrutiny. That's inevitable. And parliamentary scrutiny across swathes and swathes of legislation, some of it's impacting on extremely important rights, maternity leave and, and, and so on. So that's the first reason. The second reason the House of Lords is going to hate this legislation is that it bequeaths to ministers enormous powers to legislate in effect uh, without uh, any further uh, parliamentary process. And again, the House of Lords is anemic uh, to that sort of legislation. So you've got here these two particularly sensitive uh, aspects coming together in one. And I think the legislation will get a very, very bumpy ride indeed in the Lords. The Times is reporting today that, uh, with the headline, Lords will delay Rishi Sunak's bonfire of EU laws. And that's uh, by Stephen Swinford, the editor. But um, he also quotes the remarks of the former business secretary, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who says, There is no reason to give in to the unelected Remainers in the House of Lords who have consistently wanted to thwart Brexit. Repealing EU law and replacing it with domestic law seven years after we voted to leave is not especially ambitious and departments ought to be ready to do it. It was not going to be hard for the BEIS department when I was there, but there was a bit of whinging from life's eternal hand-ringers. Yeah, well, of course, J Jacob Rees-Mogg has little or no understanding of um, UK constitutional history or theory. He's not really a Tory at all, is he? He's a a sort of uh, 21st century populist uh, English nationalist. So the, the, the sort of stuff that he comes out with, completely misunderstanding uh, representative uh, democracy, uh, misunderstanding the concept of parliamentary sovereignty, completely misunderstanding the appropriate relationship between courts uh, and parliament, doesn't lead one to have any great confidence in any of his pronouncements um, on this stuff, frankly, Jonathan. I, but I also wonder whether, in practice, he may say what he says about Bayes, the business department, but I really wonder whether, in practice, the rest of government, the rest of the civil service, was in fact ready to have done the proper due diligence. Even leaving aside Ken's point about the, the need for external scrutiny, which this bill doesn't provide for, or parliamentary scrutiny, but whether government and civil service itself would have been ready, uh, and I rather doubt it. Although I've seen, even more recently than that Times report today, the number 10 official spokesman has said there are no plans to de delay the deadline. So, frankly, we will have to see. But I'm, I'm sure that House of Lords will have something to say about it. 
the next area on your list is human rights reform. Uh, and in your lecture, you, you noted the fact that the 2019 Tory manifesto had promised to update the Human Rights Act and administrative law to ensure that there's a proper balance between the rights of individuals, uh, vital national security and effective government. But you then point out that the question of how to implement that manifesto commitment has had a tangled history, partly because of the revolving door at the Ministry of Justice, because we've had Robert Buckland initially, then we had Dominic Raab, then we had Brandon Lewis, and now we've got Dominic Raab again. And um, it's been reported repeatedly that Raab is committed to implementing his Bill of Rights, but there's doubt within government and, and, and lots of uh, uh, whispering from the sidelines that it's not going to get the legislative time necessary to go on the statute book. What, what's your assessment of, of this particular piece of legislation and its likely uh, future? So this is the so-called Bill of Rights Bill, which has been introduced but I think has not even had its second reading yet. No. So that is absolutely just sort of sitting there. Yeah. As you say, waiting to see whether parliamentary time is made available. It's very much a Dominic Raab project. Although successive Conservative governments have committed to human rights reform in one form or another, this particular bill is very much his project. And I think Joshua Rosenberg in a blog not long ago commented that he may be the only person in the world who supports this bill, this particular model for human rights reform, whatever you think of the HRA, this particular bill um, doesn't have very many fans. Uh, the other problem, if problem it is, that the government has, is that up to now it's said that it, it's committed to remaining party to the ECHR, which obviously means that we are bound by our international obligations to respect the convention, we're subject to the jurisdiction of the Strasbourg Court, and that for good or ill, gives the government very little room for manoeuvre in terms of the actual content of the rights. But what the bill tries to do, whilst for now at least remaining party to the convention, is make it more difficult for cases to be brought in the UK courts, for example, by requiring claimants to get permission in a way they don't currently have to, and in various very convoluted ways, directing the UK courts as to how they are to interpret convention rights, in particular in uh, deportation cases, for example, so that they're directed to take a, a, a narrow approach to the way that rights are interpreted, or in other respects, to pay particular weight to the fact that Parliament has legislated in a particular way. And again, what this adds up to is, is trying to make it more difficult for claims to succeed in the UK courts. So um, it's, a, it's a very complicated piece of legislation. It's very difficult to see it as a Bill of Rights in the sense it doesn't confer any new rights and it doesn't make it easier for people to enforce the rights they've got. It makes it more difficult. Uh, and the final point I make about it is that the likelihood, if this bill were to succeed in doing that, is that it will mean that more cases go off to Strasbourg because those who failed to enforce their rights in the UK courts will then be left with no option but to take their cases off to European Court of Human Rights. And you might think that's exactly what the government doesn't want to happen, contrary to the idea of the UK courts having the last word, because what it means is that more cases will go off to Strasbourg and then that court will have its say. So for all of those reasons and, and a number of others, it's a very tangled, very complicated and, I would say, a pretty hopeless piece of legislation. 
Well, the Bill of Rights legislation is obviously a terrible piece of legislation. And interestingly, during Liz Truss's very brief interregnum, when uh, Brandon Lewis was Justice Secretary and paused uh, the Bill of Rights, that all the noise coming out of Number Ten, all the, the the messaging coming out of Number Ten, was that this was terribly badly drafted and politically incredibly stupid. Not least because the Labour Human Rights Act, as they put it, has always provided the Tories with a wonderful excuse whenever things go wrong in the courts, and they no longer have that. Um, I, I bumped into Robert Buckland, who we're hoping to get on the podcast uh, over the next few weeks to talk about uh, about this stuff, and and he said to me that the the row in number 10 is, is, is still going on. And, and, and there's a great desire in number 10 to dump this legislation and no great desire uh, to continue with it. And I, and I think the likelihood is that it, that it won't continue. Uh, apart from anything else, Dominic Raab is in a very weak position um, politically. He's besieged by bullying allegations and uh, negative briefing from his colleagues. And he's sitting in a very marginal seat down there in Surrey, which he's very likely to lose in the House of Lords. So I, I think this legislation, which would be a nightmare again for the government of the House of Lords, is unlikely to progress um, any further. And I don't think Dominic Raab's career, frankly, is going to progress very much further. So on the politics of it, well, I agree. It's very difficult to see that there's any support for this bill from anywhere else in government or parliament or, or indeed anywhere outside. And you might also think that the Secretary of State for Justice has got other things to worry about, uh, given the challenges to the justice system, the court system, barristers striking, the condition of the justice estate and so on, that these might be rather more pressing political priorities uh, for him and for the public than tinkering in this rather inept way with the Human Rights Act. So that would be my political assessment, as a not as a politician, but as a, an observer and a punter. Um, before I ask you about, um, take up Ken's point about the political trouble that Rob is in over allegations of, of bullying and so on, but on the, the, the Human Rights Act or the Bill of Rights build intended to repeal the Human Rights Act. Um, I, I think I urge all listeners to read the lecture given by Lord Mance last October. It was the Thomas More lecture. And he does an absolutely magnificent job of dissecting this Bill of Rights bill. It really does uh, expose all the weaknesses and the dangers that lie within this piece of legislation. But Jonathan, going back to Raab, uh, as we know, he's in a lot of trouble with allegations from numerous civil servants um, queuing up to make complaints about how they were treated by him. And it raises a, a question of how standards and ethics are to be enforced in circumstances where, until recently, there was no uh, ethics advisor, as you've, as you've commented on. The procedure seems to be an unusual one, certainly as far as I'm concerned. I don't know what you think, but a, a, a KC, Adam Tolley, is an employment law silk, has been appointed, uh, I presume by the Cabinet Office, to investigate and report back um, but what what do you think about that? I mean, is it an unusual procedure? I think it is unusual. It's not unheard of, obviously, for external counsel to be consulted on any tricky issue, including a kind of employment issue or a handling question. I think what was unusual in this case was that at the time when Adam Tolley was appointed, there was no independent hmm. advisor on the code. So I suppose for that reason, the Prime Minister uh, must have thought he needed some external help to investigate 
which I think is what Adam Trolley has been asked to do, to investigate and produce a report for the Prime Minister, who will then decide what action to take. The Prime Minister will decide whether in fact there has been a breach of the Ministerial Code, a, a bullying or inappropriate behaviour it is contrary to the Ministerial Code. So what Adam Tolley seems to have been asked to do is to analyse the evidence and produce a kind of factual report, and then the Prime Minister will decide whether that amounts to a breach of the code, and if so, what sanction, if any, should be should be imposed. So that's, I mean, that is all a bit unusual. As I say, it may be partly explained by the fact that there was no independent advisor. Now there is. Uh, it's not clear whether the new independent advisor will have a role in this process or not. But anyway, um, that seems to be uh, what uh, Adam Tolley has been asked to do. I mean, he's, I don't know him personally, but he seems to be a very experienced, a well-respected KC. He was previously uh, on the Attorney General's A panel of counsel, so he's very experienced. I'm sure he will have uh, done work both for and against the government. So, I mean, no reason to suppose he won't do a completely professional job. But in the end, the, the, the scheme for regulating ministerial conduct is that the Prime Minister takes the ultimate decision, both on whether there has been a breach, and if so, whether there should be a sanction. And it sounds as if that's what's going to happen. Uh, but it's a very, it is a very serious thing for a minister to be subject to uh, allegations of that kind. I and mean, he, Mr. Arbor is entitled to a fair process, and one assumes that's what he will get. But that's the, as far as I can see, that's what's going on. It's not quite clear, is it? At least I'm not aware what the process is, whether it'll, I, I'm assuming it won't involve oral hearings and, or an opportunity to cross-examine or and query whether Rob will be told precisely who are making the allegations against him. Well, I don't know. Uh, certainly, it would be very unusual to have any kind of oral hearing. Yeah. But it may be that Adam Tolley will meet Mr. Rob uh, and get his side of the story. But again, I have no, you know, no way of knowing. And we may never know because... Uh, it's entirely unclear what kind of report will be produced and or whether it will be published. Presumably something will be published, but again, that's all in the hands of the Prime Minister. Uh, it's all very unclear at the moment. Well, uh, for, for, for all the reasons that Ken has given, uh, and you've agreed with really, uh, uh, Mr. Robb's political future looks extremely uncertain, and there certainly does seem to be a dearth of support for this Bill of Rights bill. So my, my prediction for 2023, um, always a dangerous thing to do, is that the Bill of Rights bill will not pass and the Human Rights Act will survive while the government concentrates on perhaps other more precise and focused legislation, specifically this legislation to address um, the, the, the migrant crisis, so-called, of small boats floating over and how to deal with that. I agree with that prediction, yeah. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much. That's been a, a really fascinating discussion around uh, what I, I think we all agree are the big issues likely to uh, develop in 2023. So thank you so much for joining us and, and we look forward to having you back here again. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, thanks very much, Jonathan. That was that was great and, and very good to have you back. Well, I hope you've uh, enjoyed this latest episode of Double Jeopardy. We've very much... Uh, enjoyed bringing it to you. Recently in his uh, substack, the very distinguished legal commentator Joshua Rosenberg described Double Jeopardy as the podcast that has attracted guests who might not otherwise be willing to answer challenging questions 
for an hour. So let me repay the compliment to Joshua and encourage all of our listeners to subscribe to his Substack, where you will not only find links to Double Jeopardy, but also some of the most penetrating and incisive legal commentary around. Again, thank you for joining us. Uh, Do subscribe. um, Do leave us a positive review. Share us with your friends. um, And we hope to see you again uh, very soon. Our editor, as ever, uh, is Billy Lawrence.